Lord, we just, as we even just take a breath in the last second, we recognize that every breath comes from you. You sustain all life on this planet, and you are intimately involved with everything that is going on. And you care deeply about each one of us. So, Lord, as we, um, as we talk about an interesting topic today in our relationship to authority, just a sense that, that, that what we're asking for is you, you teach us to surrender. First to your authority in our life, Lord, but also to the authorities that you have placed over us. And that is not an easy thing to do. So we're just calling out Holy Spirit for your help. So if anything, in all of this that is is spoken about, Lord, would you please just communicate your truth and let that penetrate our hearts and teach us about uh, surrendering all to you. Thank you, Lord, that you love us, and it is really a joy and a privilege as we surrender. Teach us how to do that today, Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. In a 1986 film... Jeremy Irons stars as a Jesuit missionary working among a remote native tribe in the jungles of South America. Irons plays the part of Father Gabriel. He's a priest in this Jesuit order who gains acceptance among this tribe called the Guarani. After at least one other missionary before him in the opening scenes of the movie was, was killed because these native peoples did not want him there. And after his work, he ends up establishing a mission there for the Catholic Church and uh, is accepted by the Guarani, and many of them in this tribe are converted to Christianity. The other starring uh, person in this film is Robert De Niro, and he, pray, he plays the role of a man named Rodrigo Mendoza, who is a slave trader and mercenary. And he actually ends up joining this mission and then becoming a part of the Jesuit order after a series of of tragic events. He he, he discovers his his brother, his beloved brother, uh, in a compromising situation with his fiancée, ends up killing him, and then is just totally filled with, with just grief and shame and guilt over what he's done encounters Father Gabriel, who leads him uh, along this, this journey of pe- paying penance and is then accepted by this tribe, this Guarani tribe, who were some of the peoples that he used to enslave. Now, if, if you haven't heard, I'm, I'm sure many of you already know, this is, I'm talking about the movie called The Mission. And uh, the main conflict of this story, amongst all that's happening in these people personally among, in this tribe, is, is a conflict of, of really of nations. And it's between uh, Spain and Portugal who are fighting over this new land in, in South America. And uh, during the, the, the film, this, this treaty, what's called the Treaty of Spain, a historical treaty was signed to kind of set this line so that Portugal, who is on the eastern side where now Brazil, present-day Brazil is, could not cross. But what it did was it, it moved some of these missions among these native peoples into the Portuguese territory. And what that meant, because the law in the day was that Spain gave these, these missions uh, kind of as sanctuary places. They were safe zones for the native peoples so they couldn't be, you know, 
captured as slaves or whatever, um, they moved into Portuguese territory who didn't have the same law and who also were still supporting slavery. So what that meant was that all these missions were, were to be shut down. In the movie, you see some of these other missions that were run by other Jesuit orders are shut down, and the, and the native peoples moved into different areas. But the people of the Guarani refuse to surrender. And they say, no, this is not God's will, even though the Catholic Church is saying, this is what we're going to do. They're saying, how can this be God's will? They, are, they argue with this cardinal who comes to visit the mission. And so it ends up being a conflict. The Spain and the Portuguese both end up saying, hey, you need to leave the mission or we're going to come in and invade. And the group, Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons, are split about what to do. They both are saying, yes, this is not God's will and we are, we are not going to comply with this order. But they're split in terms of how to respond. And so Robert De Niro ends up saying, we're going to fight. And he trains the Guarani in these tactics of war that he's learned over these years of being a mercenary and a slave trader and capturing people. Jeremy Irons decides to go the, the non-violent resistance. And I won't give away the ending of the movie, but at the closing, very dramatic scene, you, you see Robert De Niro faced with the question of who was right. And when it comes to an unjust government or injustice being done by authority over you, what is the right response? Obviously, in our own country, there's all kinds of injustice that's been in the news recently. If you go just a few years back, there's the, you know, there's the Occupy Wall Street movement. And now what's been more front and center is the Black Lives Matter, just saying, hey, you know, what's happening here in our country is not right. And so the question is, how do we, as followers of Jesus, respond to authority above us that is not always acting with justice or righteousness? What does the Bible say to give any wisdom about how we are to act towards a government that is not always promoting the welfare of everyone in it? So to answer this question, um, I want to look at a, a passage in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, and he's just kind of finished 11 chapters of very dense theology, which I would just condense to say, hey, God loves us, we've all fallen away from him, and the only way back to God is by putting our faith in Jesus. And that God is gracious and will forgive all of our sin if we just confess our sin and turn to him knowing that it's only through the faithfulness and the righteousness of Jesus that we can be accepted. I don't know if that was the best, you know, two-sentence summary in Romans, but gosh, that's a tough challenge, okay? All that to say, he's moving into some of the more practical things in this letter to this church in Rome. Okay, this is going to be an important point. He's writing to people that are followers of Jesus in Rome, you know, the capital of this huge, vast Roman Empire. All right, so if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 13. If you don't, you can look up on the screen and, and read along with me, okay? This is Romans 13, and we're going to start in verse 1. All right, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, 
and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. The authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. All right, so you can see the main thrust of this passage here is the idea that the authorities that exist have been established by God. Now that alone is a thought. Right? That every person that's in a position of authority has been established by God. That God is the one that has granted them that position. Now, it's especially radical considering the context of this letter. So this is probably written, if you're, if you're going with conservative scholars, somewhere in the late 50s A.D. All right? That's during the reign of one emperor, Nero, who was not known to be the nicest guy. All right? And so just a handful of years later, in A.D. 64, is when there's the great fire in Rome. Probably studied about it in, like, you know, seventh grade history or something. And it burns a huge section of the city. And, you know, Nero blames the Christians. And that's when a huge persecution across the Roman Empire starts to, to persecute Christians. And some of them are burned, you know, as candles in Nero's garden and all these horrific events that he does. So Paul, Nero is in power as Paul is writing this letter. And he's saying that there's no authority that's been established except someone that's been put there by God. And you have to say that this letter's been saved for, you know, 2,000 plus years since it was written, or a little less than that, you know, 1,900 and et cetera years, right? They saved this letter. You know, and as Nero is persecuting Christians, they're coming back to this passage and saying, wow, okay, like we have to be subject to this ruling authority, right? So I just want you to, to catch the weight of, of what's happening in the context of this letter where Paul is writing, seeing this emperor that is in some ways a madman. And soon, even in Paul's lifetime, Paul will actually die under Nero's authority and will be killed as a martyr. So it just, it just strikes me as a really important point to consider. Now, the question that we posed at the beginning of this sermon of, you know, kind of that was portrayed in this movie, The Mission, of what's the right response to injustice? You know, we could phrase this a different way. During the reign of Hitler in Nazi Germany, there's a, a, a famous theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This guy was a pastor uh, and uh, a minister and a theologian, worked at a seminary, uh, traveled around a lot. And he actually became a part of this, this group called the, I don't know, my German accent's not very good, but the Abwer. Is that right, anybody? Yeah. Abwer? Yeah, okay. It was kind of this military, kind of like our, our CIA, but they ended up turning against Hitler and kind of undercover. If you've seen the movie Operation Valkyrie, or is it just Valkyrie? You know, that's what this movie is about. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as a believer, decides to join this movement and is in a part of, of this Valkyrie plan 
to assassinate Hitler and institute kind of a new a new government quickly and, and sweep across Germany and then you know have a tree make a treaty with the Allies. So all that to say that that as Bonhoeffer was doing this, he was uncertain himself if what his path that he had taken was right. At one point, he just kind of out of the blue said to some people as he was leaving on a journey, would you grant absolution, in other words, like forgiveness, to the murderer of a tyrant? So the question is, was Bonhoeffer right? Is it, is it, is it the right thing to do to try to assassinate a horrible leader like Hitler who is killing millions of people? Another spin-off of this question that hits a little closer to home, as if that's not close enough, but the American Revolution. From a biblical perspective, was the American Revolution actually the right action to take against the British government? You know, could diplomacy have worked? Could there have been some other avenue that would have yielded a similar result or independence in some other way without kind of taking up arms? Okay, now before you like, you know, run me out on a rail for being, you know, anti-American, right? Okay, just, just hear me out. I'm taking this from the perspective of what Paul is saying, and I'm just posing the question to think about is what really is the right response to authority? Now, the other side of this, you know, we have Martin Luther King Jr., who's the champion, you know, and along with Gandhi, of nonviolent resistance, Right of where we're saying, hey, we're saying this is unjust, and we're going to try to draw attention to that in a nonviolent way. So that's also in part of our American culture of taking it to this place of, you know, is this the right path? Would that have worked, you know, in some other ways? So I want to just kind of pose this and, and say that I'm probably not going to be able to solve this for you today. All right, this is a this is a huge debate even amongst Christians, and people fall on, on different sides of what's right and wrong. And even in this passage, you know, it's hard to determine if, if Paul is thinking about, you know, a, a totalitarian regime that is just annihilating groups of people, right? So, obviously, there's two sides. I think the main two arguments that you, you would see from the, the kind of the biblical perspective is, is, hey, either Christians should never rebel against the government, Right? even against an unrighteous government, or Christians have the obligation, actually, to overthrow someone that is a tyrant. All right? Now, just to give you a couple thoughts on this, you know, some names. Anyone that's a pacifist, you know, Mennonites or Amish peoples or a, a theologian, kind of our, our day, a popular theologian of our day, John MacArthur, right? He, he himself believes the American colonies were in the wrong to rebel against the king. And just looking at the New Testament passages at face value, it's a, a, a theologian I looked at this week, Peter Stuhlmacher, again, probably German, mispronouncing. All the New Testament texts dissuade one from violent opposition against the power of the state. That's a difficult thing to handle, right? And one more biblical example to throw out there is if, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of David. King David was probably the most famous and well-liked king in all of Israel's history. But his classic line as he was awaiting this authority that was to be given to him was, shall I lay a hand against the Lord's anointed? Referring to this wicked king, Saul, who even ordered you know, the slaughtering of some priests and people in his own nation, and he would not take his life even though he had chance after chance to do it. Another passage in the Bible I just want to mention. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, a couple of verses here. 
It says, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, in other words, other believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. So it's just a similar theme written by, you know, Peter. So you got Peter and Paul kind of both supporting this idea. Okay, you guys still with me? This is a little academic today, okay? The other side of the coin is Christians who say it's not just, you know, okay, but it's actually the obligations to do, obligation of Christians to do what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did, which is to oppose some kind of tyrant or totalitarian regime or opposing injustice, even if it means taking up violence. Popular theologian of the day that, that, that kind of takes this position is Wayne Grudem. Wrote a huge, you know, 1,400-page uh, systematic theology textbook if you need something to read in your spare time. Okay? I'm sure it's very, you know, it's very lively. Um, you know, he, he says it's morally right for lower government officials to protect the citizens under their care from higher officials committing crimes against those citizens. Right? He argues that a tyrannical government is not actually really a government. And the principle of the rule of law implies the right of rebellion. And in dealing with this Romans 13 passage, I'm guessing he would point out the fact that this is talking about, that we read, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Right? But when they're not doing that, that calls their authority into question. Okay? And you can, I mean, you can get into all kinds of philosophical debates about what actually is a government. How many people does it take to make a government? Can us in this room say, you know what? We're forming a government, and so now we have the rights of a government, and we're going to rebel against the government that is over us. I don't think we should do that. But I'm just saying it becomes very philosophical in thinking about you know, what government actually is. So, you know, others, other theologians, just to add some weight to this, John Calvin is in this camp, Thomas Aquinas, Benjamin Franklin said, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Biblical examples. There's one very uh, kind of classic example where God actually anoints this guy named Jehu to go through and kill both of the kings of Israel and Judah and annihilate their entire kind of ruling family. That's in the Old Testament. It's a little unpleasant, but it's there. Right? God calls him to do that. Obviously, Moses and the people of God, you know, if you've seen Prince of Egypt or, you know, be, you know let my people go, the older version. What, what's his name? Yes, Ten Commandments. Thank you. Yes, Charlton Heston, right? If you've, if you've seen that, right, or if you haven't read the Bible, maybe you've seen those movies, right? They, they rebel against a government, right, and they move out of that land. Right? And God is actually the one that does all the violence in that, but there's still, there's still some warring there. Okay? So all that to say, gosh, this is a hard issue. And I hope we never actually have to decide which way to go. You know, as Bonhoeffer himself was just conflicted with guilt over, over his part in kind of what they were doing and in this assassination attempt on Hitler himself, you know, just not being necessarily certain about what the direction that God was leading him. Okay. Now, that's the debatable stuff, and I just say, hey, you know, if we go there at some point, we've just got to walk that out with God. 
And it may have to even be a personal thing of, of where believers are just divided as they've been through the ages of, of how we should respond to a government that's not just. If it comes to a place where, you know, violence, it feels like that needs to be taken. So what I want to do now is give you five points that I'm pretty certain about from the Bible. Five things that I think, especially in this context that we're dealing with now, are really helpful to engage in from a biblical view and what we would say we sense that Jesus is leading us in and how we are to respond in this day and age. Okay? Now here's the first one, and it's not very fun, and that is, number one, Christians are to pay their taxes. Now, in Massachusetts, we have the history of Henry David Thoreau, who through civil disobedience decides he's not going to pay his taxes, I would say, from a Christian perspective, you probably still need to do that, okay? That is an option that people have taken under civil disobedience, but it seems like the Scripture is pretty clear in at least a couple of places that we're to do that. Jesus says, right, in his classic line, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. I'm sure that Jesus did not support everything that Caesar was doing. Right? He wasn't saying, okay, because I'm giving this money, I'm saying, yep, Caesar, you're the man, and we all love you, and you're the best, and everything that you're supporting is, is awesome, and I believe in it. But there's a certain sense that we have an obligation to support this government that should be serving the people. All right? Now, maybe the only, the only really you know, convicting thing is, I'm guessing most of you are, are taxpaying citizens, but it's just not to cheat the system. You know, if you're getting tips from being a waiter or a waitress, you need to declare those honestly if you're going to follow Jesus. All right? Okay. Point number two. Okay? Christians are to obey the government unless what they demand contradicts what God commands. This is clear from the Scripture. Okay? In Acts chapter 5, uh, you've got Peter and I think John that are interviewed by some people, and they said, hey, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in the name of Jesus, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Clear from the Scripture. Right? Same thing with Daniel. If you know the story of Daniel, these bad guys are trying to get him caught for something, and he's so blameless that they can't find anything to catch him. So they pass a, have the king pass a new law saying, you can't pray to anybody at the king. Daniel's like, no, I'm still praying to God. They throw him the lion's den. The lions don't eat him. That's a great story. Except, I mean, then they throw the other guys in the lion's den. That's where it gets a little bloody. Okay. But the point is, Daniel didn't obey, right? Because the, the key thing is, right, we need to obey God if there's ever a contradiction. But you need to obey the government, Okay. So, you know, like we all do are good Christians. We all follow the speed limit all the time, okay? Just throwing it out there, okay? Self-convicting. All right. But seriously, that, that is a mandate from Scripture that we obey the authorities over us unless it contradicts God, okay? Christians should use their positions of influence to do good and promote life. You see that throughout the Bible, okay? Starting with Joseph, who saves, like, all of civilization, basically, from this famine, Okay, he was, you know, elected, you know, prince of Egypt and whatever. Um, you've got Esther, you've got Daniel, you've got, even with Jesus, you've got Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who use their position of influence to find Jesus a place to be buried, and they put his body there. So the point is just, hey, we are not to retract from government. We're to use whatever power we have as citizens, so in this upcoming election, to vote, right, to, you know, to protest, to do, you know, whatever is amongst the civil discourse to promote the good of the country. 
So this is not, the Bible's not saying it's some kind of retreatist, like, hey, let's just pretend nothing's happening and we'll kind of, you know, just huddle and, and hope nothing bad happens. It's no, it's to be fully engaged in the political process in whatever ways that we're feeling led to do that, whether it's running for office or just, you know, voting. That's what the, the Bible is setting as an example for us to follow, okay? All right, point number four, okay? Christians are to pray for those in authority. 1 Timothy 2 says, I urge them, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, this is easy to say, but I don't know how many days go by that I don't give a second thought about praying for our governor, Right? Or praying for, you know, the mayor of our city or the, you know, the President Obama. The Bible's saying this should be a consistent rhythm, right, in our lives is to pray for the people that are over us. They are making huge decisions that affect the whole world. I mean, what would happen if Christians all over our country started doing this? Would it have an effect on our country? Right? And setting the direction for for You know, even just talking about poverty or this issue of racial reconciliation, we need to pray for those, for for people in authority so that they would have wisdom beyond what they even know. This is a huge calling that God has given us to that I sense in a lot of ways we, we have failed as a church to do that. And maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I think out of this, I want to say, hey, can we re-up on this? Can we re-up as a church on praying for the people that are there, whether they're part of the party that you like or not, and saying, hey, they're over me, and now I need to get behind them. And I'm going to pray consistently that they will do what's good because it really does matter, right? The government matters. In this passage that I just read, it's talking about, hey, you need to pray that peace would be promoted because it has an effect on you know, even the ability of the church to grow and expand for more people to know Jesus. All right? All right, last point. Christians are to honor those in positions of authority in the government. Let's just pause there for a second. Now, also guilty as I'm pointing the finger at myself, slandering those in authority over me that I do not like. According to the Bible, we are to show honor to whoever is there. Now, I'm not saying we need to muzzle our mouths and not, you know, talk about the issues, but I think the dividing line is between when we say, this is what this person has done and this is what they have said and this is what they support versus that person is evil. We condemn the person. That is where it gets really slanderous and, and, and not honoring to someone instead of dealing with the issues, the statements they've made, or, you know, whatever it is about them that they're supporting. This is convicting to me, right? Because with both of our candidates, I have a tendency to get very negative about them, just kind of putting it out there for where I've been emotionally in this election year, right? So I think as a church, we have got to move in a different place. And obviously, we're just a small group here, and we can't necessarily change the entire kind of Christian landscape. But at least here, we can say we're going to be a people that honor other people. We're going to honor them as someone that's made in God's image, that God still loves and values regardless of how, of what they've said or what they've done 
we're going we're gonna to say we're still going to honor them. Because the Bible says that, that whoever is elected or whoever is over us has been put there by God. Right? Their authority is from the Lord. Okay. One last thing that I want to say that I think is really important given where we're at as a country. So these five points of honoring our leaders, not speaking badly about them, but still dealing with the issues, right? Praying for them that are in authority, really committing to that and recognizing the importance of that. Using our positions of influence, right? Engaging in the political process. Um, Obeying the government, unless obviously it contradicts things that God has commanded us to do and paying our taxes. The last thing I want to talk about is just fear. Fear is not from God. And it doesn't lead to freedom. And that is something that I think, you know, for many, for many people, Christians, non-Christians, I mean, just whoever in our country, it's a huge deal in this election. Where we're, we're feeling afraid, you know, afraid of this person gets elected or this person gets elected and what they're going to do and what's going to happen, right? Whatever side you're on. We have to fight against that with everything we've got. Because being gripped by fear is never going to lead us into freedom, right? It's, as, as a people, as a nation, it's always, fear always enslaves us, right? It always makes us victims and, and controlled by other things instead of rising up in strength. It's interesting that this passage that I read, 1 Peter 2.17 says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So at no point, right, does the Bible say, fear the people that are above you. All right, I, I just contradicted that because in Romans 13, now I'm just recognizing, yes, it does say that, okay? It says, should you, not, should you not fear the one who is in authority? Okay, I was trying to avoid this, but let me just tease it out here. Okay, there's a, there's a slightly different nuance in terms of what the word fear is meaning, right? When it says fear God, it's this awe, this respect that is due to God, it's, it's, it's a different thing than oftentimes where we go with an emotional response that, that paralyzes us, all right? So what I'm saying is, is that we've, we've got to come to grips with, with fear. That cannot be a place that is going to, help, is going to kind of elicit these emotions in us and, and force us to react in ways that are not healthy for us or for this country. So as believers, I really sense that that, that is a call in this, in this season for us is to move out of fear. Right? The Bible says, do not fear those that can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Be afraid of the one that can put both soul and body in hell. Those are the words of Jesus. It's only to God that we're to have this ultimate respect and recognize that anyone that is in authority over us, he has put there. Okay, so let's have the band come back up. And uh, today we're just going to respond in a couple different ways. So one, we're just going to try to immediately obedience to what we just talked about, which is we're going to pray. So if you notice, we didn't pray early in the service. Most Sundays we pray just in little small groups about some of these different things. We're going to do that in just a few minutes. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do some repentance. We're going to say, Lord, we're sorry for the ways we've promoted racism in our country. We're sorry for the ways we haven't prayed for our leaders. And then we're going to move into praying for our leaders and praying for racial reconciliation in our country. Okay. Secondly, I just want to invite you to something that uh, our Antioch movement is doing and our three churches in this area are doing that are leading up to this election. And so it's three weeks this Tuesday to the election. The election is November 8th, right? And so three weeks to that date is this Tuesday. 
So what I'm asking you to do is to consider for 21 days, for three weeks, if you would pray every day for our country. And I would add on to that for our country in that pray for our leaders, pray for the right leader, and pray for whoever is elected that they'll have wisdom, and then also pray for this issue of race and injustice that's been going on in our country. So we're going to be talking about this the next few weeks and just saying, hey, who's in for this? We're going to blast out an email blast either tonight or tomorrow with a prayer guide. If you're interested in having a guide that will walk you through some different things, but, it, but you know, there's no obligation to use that. I just want you to pray. And I think you know, we all are kind of have some sense of what's wrong with this country and where we need to go to pray for these things. Okay, So that's the invitation. Now, the week after the election, our three churches in this area are going to be doing a fast, some kind of a fast. And then, and then praying for our country. So whoever's elected, we're not saying, oh, well, it's over. I lost. You know, I didn't get the person I wanted. It's like, no, okay, now we're going to get behind that person that's elected, and now we're going to commit to pray, and we're going to take it even more serious and say we're going to fast, right? So we'll talk more about the details of that. I just want to put, put that on your radar. It's four weeks. So three weeks coming up, 21 days of prayer to the election, and then a really serious week after that of fasting and praying and saying, hey, guys, this is, a, this is a key moment in our nation. It's obviously a key moment in the world with all the turmoil that's going on. And we, if nothing else, we can pray. All right? And we want to move ourselves out of a place of fear and into a place where we are trusting God regardless of what happens or regardless of who wins. Okay? All right. So let me just, let me just close in prayer. And then after I do that, we'll just turn in, in groups. Actually, you know what? Let's just turn in groups of two to three. So this is how we do this, okay? There is no pressure obligation. If you don't feel comfortable praying in front of other people, you can just sit there and silently meditate or listen to somebody else pray. So please don't feel like, oh my gosh, Brian, what the heck are you doing to me? You know, like, you don't have to, okay. Just, you can pray by yourself or silently meditate if this feels like a lot of pressure. Not a big deal, okay? But I'd like to see us just, again, turn in groups of two to three and pray for some of these things. So let's spend a few moments just, just even if you sense that you haven't taken part in some of the sin of our country, just confess that we have sinned as a country. Like there's things that we have done wrong, right? And then move into the place of praying for these leaders, right? Praying for Obama in these last few months of his, of his, of his term and then praying for the person that's going to be elected. All right, am I, you guys ready to do this? Am I talking too much? Okay. So let's, let's turn in groups of two to three, and let's just pray. We'll do this for about five minutes, okay? And then I'll, I'll close this down, and we'll sing one song as we, as we end, okay? Let's pray.